Hey everyone, welcome to the second episode of Why We Advocate. Today, we are talking to Nick LaBelle. He's a friend and fellow North Huntington High School alumni. More importantly though, he was the 2021 Democratic candidate for New Jersey State Assembly's Legislative District 23. In November's general election, Nick garnered 22,000 votes for this office at only 22 years old. Um, this interview was recorded a couple months ago. And while we are super excited to have him on, it's unfortunate that Nick lost his race, but we are so inspired by his work. The fact that a 22-year-old was able to run for high office and come within striking distance of winning is something that inspires us and we hope inspires all of you as well. Um, so without further ado, to talk about his life and what motivates him, we want to welcome to the podcast, Nick LaBelle. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Nick. We're going to jump in to the questions. I think the first one that we have for you is, what is it that motivated you to run for office in the first place? And how did you initially get interested in politics? Yeah, that's a great question. So thank you for having me here today as well. You know, I've known, been fortunate to know Kelly uh, since high school and Robin, we were in the same program as well. So really just going back to my youth, there's always an aspect of public service that was kind of embodied in growing up. I'm one of four children. So uh, it's always been in the household, you know, how can we help out our siblings? Kind of the essence of it's not about me, it's about the greater good, the collective, you know, our family, like building those values, promoting each other. And then that kind of just translated throughout, whether it was, you know, through church or whether it was in Boy Scouts, my proud Eagle Scout. That organization is still kind of the values of you know, community service, supporting those around you, being proactive. And then uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to attend you know, some pretty good institutions. You know, my high school had a really excellent YMCA civic nature program that I was part of. And that kind of brought me into uh, the state government, how that would operate, working on that level. When I was a senior, I was able to actually go to, to Washington, D.C. and work with the Senate Youth Program. I was able to work with you know parts of the government and see what, how they operate on a daily day-to-day basis. And that kind of just turned me on to more so what government can be, what it can do to help others. Like what is the purpose of government? The, the main impact was how can it be utilized to be put into public service and helping people that need it the most. And that kind of led itself to then my experience at Rutgers um, when I was fortunate enough to be involved in the student government and this past year serve as their student body president and, you know, advocate for the needs of over 40,000 students, whether it was on a local, state or federal level. And that's kind of what brought me into it. And then it's just kind of a progression from there. So it's always been a running theme, you know, within my my life, Robin, whether it was in people would joke in middle school, like, oh, Nick's going to go into politics. And they weren't wrong. So that's kind of where we ended up now. So it's been progressing in that way. Did you win most likely to be president at North? I, I actually, I got most likely to be successful. And then, um, which I, I don't know if it's the same thing. You could, you could say it's is or it's not. I think... Uh, but yeah, I was student body president North too, so there's been a trend. So yeah, definitely. So you mentioned that uh, one of the things that kind of you came to realize is like government can be a vehicle for good. And you know, was there one experience that kind of made you realize that? Was it going to DC? Was it kind of student body president at Rutgers? Like, when did you start to sort of think about that? I think it's been a lot of things. Um, when I was younger, actually, and I lived in Piscataway, and I worked with some of the domestic health. Uh, groups there when I was like, you know, middle school and then, you know, before I'd left to be in Harmony County. And that really just showed me that there were some really gender inequities that existed that weren't being addressed in uh, parts of New Jersey. And that struck a chord with me. And it's been kind of 
peripheral to my you know current objectives but that was just kind of like a, a wake-up call when i was like 12 years old like wow this is something we should be focusing on and then just beyond that you know we've all seen it we've all been in communities that maybe were not being addressed as well as they could have been or in our own lives having things that we needed that we saw were you know chances to wrong right wrongs and fix inequities and that was kind of just a light bulb moment for me and then really this past year solidified that even more so with the pandemic and seeing how there were structural issues with whether it was you know student aid or whether it was food insecurity or you know talking about ways to just have people provide sustenance and achieve their best selves um where we weren't benchmarking enough we can all be very proud and very excited in the fact that Rutgers was actually the first school in the country to establish a COVID-19 relief program and that was entirely student-led so it was that even before congress and the cares act you know we were ahead of the curveball so we got on day one in office like what can we do now? Because there were students that couldn't afford rent. You know, this is before the moratorium directions. There were folks that couldn't afford food, uh, medical expenses. And then really, you know, have we, most of us lived this being in the state, we had a, we were hard hit. You know, we were the center for the first part of the pandemic. And we actually had students at Rutgers that lost either it was siblings or, you know, some lost parents. And then one student I spoke to actually lost both of her parents. So she lost both earners of income and had nowhere to go. So this fund provided a critical resource for her uh, to have for her and her siblings to provide for their sustenance, you know, and I was quite pleased that she was actually able to graduate in May in large part because we were able to provide and be there for her. And that was a small, you know, I say small, but it was, um, we didn't, you know, provide tens of thousands of dollars. It was, you know, a modest uh, supplement of income that allowed her to stay in school. And, you know, it's those little things that we've all seen that can really have outsized impacts. I think you said, Beverly, vehicle for change. That's where I think we all agree. Government is a place to come together to promote good work, to be somewhere we can all come. And it does not base you from where you come from. It's, you know, non-judging. Anyone's welcome. And it provides for everyone, if done well. Yeah, definitely. We're jumping a little bit ahead here with the Rutgers experience. And I, we definitely want to go back to your experience running for office. But um, since you brought it up, you know, tell us a little bit more about the actual meat of, like, the mental health initiatives that you had. Um, and I'm also curious as to when you started in the pandemic as president. Was it the summer? Was it the school year? What did that look like? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, I, I've established I'm kind of like, you know, a political junkie. So I, I like doing that kind of uh, that kind of work. So when I was in freshman in college, I joined student government, kind of worked my way up through various committees. Uh, actually, I was the student body treasurer junior year. So for us, that was, you know, uh, 2019, 2020, kind of going into the pandemic. And so then, you know, it was my job to manage a few million dollars in a few money. And so I officially started, you know, running uh, in like February, March. And then the election was happening during COVID, like during, you know, we went home like March 12th and school shut down. And that was a big topic, you know, folks thought we were going to come back. And um, it became quite clear we were not going back, uh, you know, soon after that. So the question became, what can we do to provide for folks that are, you know, at home now and how do we pivot as an institution for good to make sure that we're still providing, you know, accessible resources, even if they're not physically on campus? So that was kind of, I made a few, you know, campaign promises when I was running. And one of them was to establish this recovery fund, which folks said we wouldn't do. You know, we were, they were like, this isn't going to happen. It's impossible. You know, it hasn't been done. Students aren't really equipped to handle this. And it was because, you know, I was, the team I was working with was driven enough to make it happen. And that shows that it's not a, you know, whether you're a legislator or a policy aide or, you know, the president of the United States, it's a collective effort. It's not a one-man job. And so I was lucky to have a team with me that was very, you know, intelligent and saw the real working this in this thing. When we were running, I told my team, like, 
we're here for one reason and one reason only, and it's to serve the, the students. It's not about us, you know, check your ego at the door. And then I think COVID just kind of helped facilitate that because we had a very present and active need that could not be ignored. So that was kind of the impetus to change. So I started, actually, I'll give you a date, like early April was the official you know, start date. Um, but we had been working on this since since March, since it started up. And then just throughout the summer, you know, a lot of it focused on academic contingencies, you know, a lot of schools working on alternative grading systems. Uh, passing their credit was using the spring semester. And then it was a very apparent need that students wanted it for the fall and possibly beyond. And the school had some valid concerns regarding how that might impact their ratings among other institutions and, you know, how that might impact the students' ability to go to graduate school and such. And so then we were able to have it was pretty effective. And this, I think, speaks to, you know, grassroots movements. We had around 15,000 students fill out a survey that was, you know, academically driven and had uh, relevant metrics. And they filled it out within the course of like 47 hours. And then me and my team went back and, uh, you know, worked on a policy dossier of 60 pages within the next 12 hours. And we presented at the school saying, hey, like, this is our stance. You know, can we get this get this done? And it's effective advocacy because it was, you know, a ground up effort with effective leadership to, to guide it. And that's kind of what we wanted to work on. And then mental health wise, um, it's all intersectional, right, Kelly? Like we've all seen like, you know, it's all COVID, whether you're in your house or at work and, you know, because students were some of them still working full time and trying to cope with that. Um, we had to kind of target where the needs were most present. So I kind of view government as being, you know, we shouldn't be judged as how the most well offer being treated. Our, our critical metric is how those least among us are being afforded and what is their outcome. You know, so that's with the recovery fund. I mentioned it was part of the CARES Act. When the CARES Act came around, it helped a lot of people, but it left out some pretty vulnerable groups. You know, so DACA students, international students, any non-Title IV eligible student could not receive funding under the Trump administration. You know, so we were kind of the only resource for those students, which when you look at the numbers, were most critically in need, especially DACA students that had, you know, other various hurdles to come over. And in our students, some of them, you know, couldn't get home because of the pandemic. So we had to like literally, you know, put them up in America and make sure that they had resources to live by. Um, you know, it's the hard numbers matter, right? So, like, you know, I think that we we saw effectively with the uh, recovery fund that we had to address the folks that couldn't get food or, or you couldn't pay rent because you can't study and you can't operate excess effectively when you have that overbearing stress, you know, so the mental health aspect, we have to have treatment, but we had to also find the root issues and prevent them if possible. What were those root issues that you found and like, how did you address them? Yeah, I think so. I, you know, this is a college students are one of the most uh, food insecure groups in the nation. You know, it's a common trend, like, you know, records specifically and this goes across the most institutions around a third are food insecure, which most folks don't recognize when they think of college students. Like everyone jokes like, oh, folks who eat ramen, like, ha ha. But no, it's a reality that most folks, you know, can't afford other food or, you know, they can't afford any food and they have to go to the food pantry or other private resources. Um, so that was a big one that most folks didn't, for those that knew, it was, you know, a needed relief. For the folks that didn't know, I think that kind of shocked them. Like, wow, a lot of students are hungry. Like there is, you know, a lot of food insecurity present and that's, you know, impactful. And that's, uh, and we can talk about this, you know, when we get into state stuff, but there's been some really good movement that was coming from the federal level, you know, allowing SNAP benefits to be used in a different way than the pandemic. And then as well as, you know, some ARP funding being used to go to the Hunger-Free Campus Act that allowed money to go to colleges and making sure that records applied for that. And, uh, you know, the campuses received some funding for the next year to address the structural problems, like, you know, so we can actually have more sustainable food brought to campus. And we actually wanted to, kind of packaging with other policies, 
make things sustainable in more than one way. So we looked at how we could actually grow food on campus with aeroponics, hydroponics, so it'd be you know green food, provide jobs, while also allowing for a sustainable, healthy food source for students. So food was a big one. But honestly, you know, food I think was the most under-realized lack within a college community. But then beyond that, I mean, I think we, we just, I know we might talk about racial justice as well, but that was something else that was, um, of course, brought to the forefront with George Floyd. And, you know, a lot of college students were kind of turned on to that. And especially some minority students had, you know, genuine uh, concerns and things to be addressed. You know, that was like interesting to bring up and how can we can still facilitate and work through and advocate for those, you know, critical issues while not being on campus. And that was like, I think, a root cause of a lot of, especially in that time frame, May, June, July, there was a lot of just anger and agitation over, you know, race relations in America that was impacting students' academic performance because they were either uncomfortable, you know, talking about certain issues or, you know, not able to, um, on top of everything else, like, you know, just adding an even more egregious burden of stress. You talk about being a numbers guy, but I know being president, hearing these stories of food insecurity, um, of people on campus dealing with the racial justice issues. And then, you know, like you brought up, um, a student having lost both of her parents, you're, you're hearing these stories, you're living in the middle of a pandemic yourself. How did you deal with the stress of the job? That's a, that's a good question, Kelly. Um, the main thing is having support, you know, in, in the team around you, right? So having being able to have a team that you can work with and trust. And uh, I'm also, my family was a, a resource for me as well. You know, I mentioned I was one of four kids. Um, they're all great people. And they, my sister actually works in healthcare. So she had a pretty rough year. Um, so just being able to be there for her and likewise, you know, having more time with them in any capacity uh, was, was a welcome change, even if, you know, an unexpected one, it was nice to have them closer uh, than being spread out across, you know, campuses and such. But the main thing also is just, uh, you'll see this throughout wherever we go. It's kind of, I just dive into the work, you know, if I can't, I, it's somewhat paradoxical, but to relieve stress, I work more. That's, that's what I found. You know, if I can kind of just like, I don't feel done and I might not really feel done. I don't know until I can help as many people as I, as I, as I do. So it drives me where it's like, you know, that student that lost her parents, she got the need, she got the help, you know, what else can we do? What's next? So now you're running obviously, um, for legislative district 23 to be the rep coming off of this experience as Rutgers president. How did that propel you to, to do the current, um, job that you're trying to do? Well, I think it's just the main theme of, again, you know, public service, right? So like, I think this is why I imparted this to folks that were in, whether it was, you know, youth and government programs that I mentioned uh, that we were involved with earlier in our high school careers, or, you know, people that are involved in student government in college, or even, you know, other working with government agencies in their internships and such. It's the political, you know, is an aspect, but it's the least important aspect. Like the service is what's more important. So seeing that, you know, from Rutgers, there's 40,000 people that I wanted to help. And now it's around... 229,000, you know, so it's kind of like putting it to scale and like, well, okay, this is the people that I've lived with and known for most of my life. You know, I love this community because public service at its core is love. I think it's an extension of that love from self onto those around you and then their needs and their concerns and seeing how we can best address that. And that was kind of, you know, that message sticks, you know, you don't, you can't lose that if you're doing it for the right reason. It's always the same impetus. So, Nick, you were endorsed by the Democratic Party to be the nominee, the 23rd 
legislative district. That's correct, right? Correct. Could, could you walk us through kind of the process of how you went about kind of doing that? It is, yeah, it is very um, unusual if someone as young as, young yeah. as you would be, be able to do that, though. Yeah. And impressive. Well, the, it's, it's, it's both. So thank you guys for uh, for putting that in there. It's um, It was honestly like, it was not expected. You know, I can say that with, with Candor when I was doing records and I was also, you know, a student and I was, uh, I work in a small company business, you know, we, we do, I was doing that as well. So I was a pretty busy guy, um, for a lot of reasons. And I hold all my commitments pretty seriously, whether it's my family or, you know, my, my work or those that are close to my life. And I want to give them all hundred percent, which, you know, can be trying, can be challenging, but then, uh, a few of my friends who were involved with, you know, local politics and had been around for a bit said, Hey Nick, like, you know, this election's coming up and, we've seen what you're doing and you might be a good candidate. We think you're going to, most of them knew me personally. And then some that didn't, that just kind of heard of me. And they said, you know, we're just going to talk to you and vet. So that's how, with anything, Brevin, like, and we've seen this with uh, anything in life, whether it's professional or political or personal, it's conversations, right? So it's like talking like, Hey, like, you know, maybe you should do this. I'll consider it. Thank you. That kind of thing. And then from there it becomes more serious. Well, okay. We have a committee meeting for our town. Like, you should come and talk, you know, kind of meet the people there. And it's all relationship building. So that's the first step. And then beyond that, you know, we operate in a system in New Jersey where we have county chairs, you know, in a very strong county system. So in, as I mentioned prior, the district spans three different counties. So then it was actually working to speak with the county officials and like, you know, have them know me, you know, get to meet you know them a bit. And then they each had their own separate nominating conventions that we had to go through an actual uh, ballot. Yeah. Um, I guess like another question is, you know, most of the politicians that are in both like state and federal government are, are wealthy and they're older. I think the average age of a lawmaker in New Jersey is 59. Um, so how does like a young person with not that much like personal wealth or personal like establishment um, kind of come up in like, you know, what's, what's a path for a young person like that to politics. Yeah, so that's thank you for bringing that up because I think you know it's a overlooked fact that you know the uh, median age in, in Congress is even I don't want to say you know it's not worse but it's uh, even older. It's an even older demographic, right? So the easiest way is just get out there. You know, like if you want to whatever you want to do, identify what you'd like to get done, and there's a group for about anything. So you know, even if it's not want to be you know capital P political, there's whether it's a private charity or, you know, whether it's like an advocacy group, there's people that are looking to do good things you can find and uh, get involved with that. But if you'd like to work in the actual political sphere, there's always, we joke in New Jersey, Brevin, you know, every year's election year, because that's how we work in New Jersey. So we have federal and state, you know, federal and state kind of builds off. So people are always looking for folks to get involved, you know, whether it's working on campaign teams, whether it's working with uh, just policy offices, like and of any ages, you know, we've seen, we're, we're actually, we've, we've, brought on people that are in high school to work on our campaign um, and in college. And we've had folks that are in their, you know, eighties working on our campaign. So age is not the discriminant, but we need more younger folks to get involved in politics because it's our future, right? And it's, we have to be the voice that's helping define where we go from that. Otherwise we have no say in our outcomes, which is, you know, antithetical to the point of democracy, you know, one, man, one person, one vote, be heard, be part of the process. And then, make that change. So the biggest advice we can give Brevin is just identify people in your community that are working to make change and, you know, seek them out, get to know them and offer your offer to help them in any capacity you want to do this. You know, it could be as local as like working on the uh, stormwater commission in your town, 
right? Or working on like, you know, the parks department or work, anything, you know, or working with a charity regarding food and security, like any issue that you want to get involved with, just get involved, just get out there, find a group. And then if you want to end up running for office, um, you know, hit me up, like talk to folks that are also young and involved kind of thing. That's the way to get the momentum and see people that can be mentored and brought up and built as people. I'm curious, you said you brought high schoolers um, onto your campaign. Obviously, the point of this podcast is to get high schoolers involved um, in politics and, and young people. So what does it look like for a high schooler to join a campaign like yours? Yeah, so it's really, we try to best identify what they'd like to do and what they're good at, and then, you know, help them grow in that respect as it relates to what we're doing. So, so if you're a young person and you like numbers and you're into computer science and you want to kind of use that skills to figure out how to best find marginalized communities and encourage them to vote, we can make that happen. You know, if you want to design graphics that you think are, you know, aesthetically pleasing, and if you're that kind of person, like, we'll make that happen for you too. If you are, if you like actually working on the ground and doing field organizing, I have a friend that we're hoping to bring on, you know, for more, not a full-time job, but, you know, more substantial in the fall. And he's actually going to be coordinating and, you know, running a field campaign. You know, he's going to be working with, like, getting people, volunteers going out, working with, you know, uh, we use minivan in the Democratic Party, which is like a canvassing service that allows folks to identify voters that haven't been reached out to or, you know, maybe haven't been able to vote in a past election and work with that. So, Kelly, really, the door is open. Like I said, if there's any high school student listening on this podcast or a college student, you can do whatever you'd like. You know, it, it, you shape your own narrative. If you want to go into it and work on policy or media or field work, you know, just say that you want to do that, and most campaigns would be thrilled to have you. So I don't care if you're, you know, five years old or 95 years old. If you want to get involved, like, get involved, because it doesn't matter. Yeah, that's a great message. So, Nick, um, obviously November 2nd, that's the election. Yes, ma'am. Um, you know, win or lose, it's tremendous, and, you know, we have to commend you for running this campaign fresh out of college it's phenomenal and i, I was so excited to um see you on the ballot it was just so awesome Thanks, Kelly. but i'm gonna ask you a question and then i'm gonna ask you another question and we're gonna end on the positive one sounds good we're gonna talk about the, the not so good outcome you know if you don't win on election day um what does the next year look like that's a good question so you know i mentioned this a bit in my earlier answer but actually i, I work uh full-time you know so actually this is a fun fact in jersey is one of the only governments in the U.S. that has like a part-time legislature. So most of these folks also have some other job. Now, what we call a job might mean a lot of things. You know, so some folks don't actually work. Some of them have like, you know, other private endeavors. Some of them actually, you know, own their own companies. But uh, so I will continue to work and support my family as best I can. You know, so we work in textiles. So we're, I'm a burlap guy. So I, I sell, you know, jute products. Speaking of being green, that's something that I do. So we work on that respect. So I'd be working there still, working hard at it. And then, uh, but more so, you know, it's really this campaign's been really exciting because there's been a lot of folks like you, Kelly, that have seen my name and like, oh, like, why well, know him? And he's 21. So if he can do it, why aren't I doing anything? Right? And so actually, I have to say I was canvassing for the primary and I met a gentleman who um, had a young daughter and he was like, yeah, I don't know. I might want to get involved. Like, you know, I think it's important X, Y, Z. And then I come to find this past weekend, he isn't running for Board of Ed. And that was great. You know, he was like, hey, Nick, like, and he even, he joked, he's like, hey, like, I thought if you could do it, well, I should, like, I'm like 50, like, geez, like, why can't I do this kind of thing, right? So then, you know, showing that that, just getting involved and being able to work with and show folks, like, this is our government. You know, it's it's might sound 
we have to remember this because I think it's been lost in the past year. It is a government of the people, by the people, for the people. So the next year, Kelly, is, you know, even if win or lose, I plan on being active to help the people that I know and that I love. Because whether I was in, you know, politics or working just as like a, as a person, that's what we need. That's what this country needs. That's what we need as a society. So if anyone wants to run for office, like, even when you're not running, you're still part of our society and part of our community. And that's what's I'm most proud of, you know, working with them and supporting them. And so that next year and years after that, Kelly, I plan on being just there for the people that I love in any capacity. That's such an important message and uh, so great to hear. Um, and now, you know, for the better question, if you win um, first day, what's your first initiative? Oh, geez, too much. <laughs> I think we're going to have a long list of the uh, OLS, which is Office of Suggestions, you know, to work on. Like, hey, like, this is what we want to get done kind of thing. So I mentioned it prior, but our democratic deficit is real. And I think, you know, day one, we have to like, just like, hey, you know, these are the things that we can bring up and feasibly get done. You know, it's always been a big issue. Like, oh, what about gridlock? What about that? You know, so day one, working on that, you know, the environment, like, you know, really sitting down and looking at, okay, we've already done some good work this past year on whether it's uh, energy application standards or working with, you know, investment off- offshore wind energy, like a lot of those, you know, more broader perspectives, but I, I could not sleep comfortably at night if I was in office and was not doing everything that I could to address that issue because it is an issue that is existential in part and just, you know, could impact all of us, whether regardless of our age or income. And that's going to be on the top of my mind, you know, every day in trend. So if I had to boil it down, it's kind of like, you know, day one, it's a hefty ask, like, you know, we have to do this, but that's what I'd start with. Well, Nick, thank you so much. This was um, so great and, you know, I'm sure everyone listening to your story is going to be very inspired um, to take charge of, you know, their communities, get involved. I and mean, I'm very excited for them to hear this. Well, thank you so much, Brevin and Kelly. And I'm honored to be with you today. And I'm you know, like your message there, get involved. So if you're a person listening, you know, go out, seek the people that you know, and make it happen. You, you are the vehicles for change. You will make it happen. You know, we are the future. Let's make it good. So thanks, Kelly.